I got a brand new sweetie, better than the one before. Oh, she's got everything and a little bit more. Hello, friends, and welcome to another mini episode of Additional History Headlines You Probably Missed. I'm your host, Tiffany Clark, and today's mini episode is going to be extra unique. Usually on these mini episodes, I tell you a story about one person or one event. But today, I'm going to tell you about multiple people and events. Quite often when I'm browsing through newspapers, whether they're papers from our famous dates or papers from random dates where I was looking up something completely unrelated, I come across small news stories that are sometimes funny and sometimes shocking, and I think I'd love to share that story on the podcast. But it's really short and it doesn't fit anywhere. After finding many of these stories and ignoring them, I finally decided to start clipping these mini-articles and keeping them in a folder until I found a use for them. So, today's mini-episode is dedicated to random newspaper clippings. Since each article is from different days, months, decades, and even centuries from the last, for the first time ever, I'm not assigning an official date as the name of this episode. Instead, I'm calling it Random Clippings Number 1. I thought really hard about that title, can you tell? Anyway, without further ado, let's look at some random clippings. For my first random clipping, I'm taking an article from the Boston Globe dated October 6, 1937. Friends, this is one of my favorite random clippings that I've come across so far, and that's probably because it's so, well, random. According to this article, there was a man named John Mulligan. John was 64 years old at the time of this incident, and he resided in a town called Keene, New Hampshire. At the time the article was written, John had been taken to Elliott Community Hospital to be treated for a shoulder injury. And how did John get that shoulder injury, you ask? Let me tell you. He was headbutted by a goat and fell out a second-story window. Yikes. That sounds painful. And while it's kind of shocking, and since John survived to tell his tell, I'll dare say it's funny. But you haven't actually heard the funny part yet. You might wonder why a goat was on the second story of a building, right? But here's the thing. The goat wasn't real. John was asleep in his home when he started dreaming about a goat. In his dream, the goat was chasing him. At some point, John must have gotten out of bed, still in a dream state, and the goat chased him to the window, where it butted him out the window to the ground below. (coughs) Our next random clipping comes from the Austin American Statesman, and it's dated September 16, 1896. The headline simply says, Pen for Life. Since the article is so tiny, I'm just going to read you the entire thing. It says, The trial of George Whaley, charged with a nameless crime, was concluded and given to the jury last night. The jury today brought in a verdict of guilty and assessed his penalty at confinement in the penitentiary for life. That's it. That's the entire article. There was one word in there that stood out to me. Did you catch it? Nameless. George Whaley's crime was nameless. Does that mean he did something bad? but the reporter didn't bother to figure out what it was. 
Does it mean that whatever he did was so weird and so unheard of that they literally didn't have a name for his strange act? Or was it so unspeakable that the newspaper didn't dare write about it? But if that was the case, why didn't they use the word unspeakable? Now, some of you might be listening and thinking to yourselves, Tiffany, why don't you look it up in another paper? Surely there's more information out there. And to that, I'll say, I tried. I really did. But it was 1896, and I couldn't find anything else about George Whaley, either before the 1896 article or after. I couldn't find anything else about his life sentence. So, since I get to be frustrated without an answer, I guess you do too. We'll just have to wonder about poor George Whaley and his life sentence for a nameless crime. For my next random clipping, I'll tell you about an article I found in the Brainerd Daily Dispatch out of Minnesota. This article is dated the 18th of December in 1903. Now, this was a story that I almost featured as a main additional history story, but I didn't. This is one that some might say is shocking and others will just shake their heads in disbelief or maybe drop their forehead into their palm. That's probably the category I'm in. The article's headline is innocent enough. It simply says, a courtship school. But as I read on, the school referred to in the headline is a very loose interpretation of the word. You see, there's also a subheadline that goes along with the article. Brides offered as prizes. A woman named Julia Works ran an orphanage in Indiana. The way she's described in the article makes her seem kind, and I do think she meant well, but, well, let me tell you this story. Julia had many children in the orphanage, both boys and girls. She said the boys were easy to find homes for or jobs if they were still in the orphanage when they reached adulthood. It was much easier for a boy to get a job than a girl back then. Even if he hadn't been trained with any skills, it was possible for him to get a job working as a farmhand or in the mines or for the railroad. But what do you do with a girl who has no family to live with and nobody else to help with securing a home and food and provisions when very few people hired women? Julia Works thought it over and molded about in her mind, and finally she came up with a solution that she was convinced would be an amazing opportunity. She would pack up all the girls who needed homes and travel around the country to places out west where there was an overwhelming number of bachelors in need of wives. Or in other words, an overwhelming number of bachelors in need of someone to cook and clean and do their laundry. They needed housekeepers. Julia planned to leave with her school in the spring, and according to her, she had good reasons for that. She said that poets insisted spring is when the heart is easier to control. More men would fall in love with her girls in the spring. Now, in case you think Julia was going to send the girls off with just any man, she did say the men would undergo strict tests given by her. There was no indication, however, of what those tests might be. But if I had to guess, it would probably include whether or not they had a house and a job with which to take care of their new bride. Julia's plan was that as soon as a man showed interest in one of her girls, she would pay for the marriage license and the preacher so there wouldn't be any financial problem for either party. Then she'd give the blushing bride her blessing, pick up her school of brides-to-be, and move on to another town in search of another willing bachelor. Julia insisted that she would only take her best girls along for the journey and that she had trained them to be homemakers. She said, quote, The men who get them will be lucky beyond their vainest dreams. This country is in need of wives who know the difference between biscuits and Battenberg. 
Too many of our modern young women lack the knowledge of practical housekeeping, and I am going to see that none of my girls get married without knowing all that a modern housewife should. Friends, I don't know what became of Julia Works and her girls, but let's hope if any of them were pawned off on the first man in need of someone to do their laundry, that they eventually found happiness. I love you too. My next story comes from the Orlando Sentinel. This was an article printed in that paper on the 1st of October, 1971, and it's a celebrity story of sorts. Whether you can remember watching him in person before his retirement in the early 90s, or whether you've just heard his name over the years, or seen infomercials advertising DVDs of his shows, I'm sure you know who the late TV show host Johnny Carson is. Johnny Carson was married four different times during his life. His second wife, Joanne, is the subject of this article. At the time it was written, she and Johnny had separated from each other, but their divorce wasn't official yet. According to the article, the couple had a tiny three-pound Yorkshire Terrier named Muffin. Both Johnny and Joanne loved Muffin as if the dog were a child of theirs. When they separated, Joanne said Johnny wanted to take turns and rotate who got custody of Muffin, just like they would have done if the dog was human. They also pulled out the family photo album, and Johnny got half the pictures of Muffin, while Joanne got the other half. This close, loving relationship with their dog is why the newspaper reported that Joanne was very upset back in 1971. Somehow, Muffin had escaped from her Bel Air home and disappeared. She couldn't find the dog anywhere. Joanne was so distraught that she wandered up and down Sunset Boulevard, looking like an idiot while trying to find Lost Muffin. Looking like an idiot are Joanne's words, by the way, not mine. When Muffin couldn't be found, Joanne was so upset that a surgeon had to come to her house and give her a sedative to calm down. Part of the reason Joanne was so upset was that she was terrified to tell Johnny she'd lost Muffin. That night, Joanne was supposed to go on a blind date with a man named Tom Tannenbaum. He worked as a Paramount TV production chief. When he showed up for the date, Joanne put him to work looking for Muffin instead. He helped her search and search and search all through the night. Finally, at dawn the next morning, Joanne and Tom found Muffin stuck in a fence on her property. When asked for a statement about the lost dog, Tom told the reporter, Next time someone wants me to meet a girl, I'm going to ask if she has a dog. Joanne never did make the call to tell Johnny that she'd lost Muffin, but apparently the newspapers told him for her since they printed an article about it. Okay, I think I'll share one more little story with you. This article comes from the Palladium Item newspaper out of Richmond, Indiana. The headline reads, Family is late again. Father to play Santa. And just like our last article, it's dated October 1st, 1971. Even though I found the article in an Indiana newspaper, it tells a story from a little town called Mead, Kansas. The town had fewer than 2,000 people back then, and it has even fewer people now. In a town that size, I can imagine that most people knew each other. Anyway, a subdivision in Mead loved to show off their Christmas spirit. The best way they did that was by having every single house decorated with Christmas lights. Since they wanted everyone in the subdivision to participate, they came up with the tradition that the last house to get their Christmas display up and running would have to provide a dinner for the rest of the neighborhood. 
Well, Clark Bird, a man who worked as a banker, had let time slip away from him during the previous holiday season, and he'd been the last to turn on his Christmas lights. He had to supply dinner for all his neighbors. Now, this wasn't Clark Griswold, but I found it funny that the story about Christmas lights was about a man named Clark. Anyway, Clark Bird decided he was never going to be the one that had to buy dinner for all his neighbors again, and that year he was going to get his lights up sooner. Well, on Sunday, September 26th, a full three months before Christmas, Clark and his family went to Colorado for a quick three-day vacation. It wasn't even October yet, but Clark figured he'd start working on his lights right after he got back. His family pulled into their driveway on Wednesday, September 29th, and lo and behold, 11 out of the 12 houses on the street were already decorated for Christmas. While his family was gone, the neighbors had all gotten together to ensure that Clark Bird would once again be buying their neighborhood Christmas dinner. I'm not sure if the moral of this story is that if you snooze, you lose, or maybe to pick kinder neighbors. We just experienced our first holiday season in a new neighborhood, and we had no idea what to expect. We didn't want to look like Clark Griswold and annoy everyone with a showy bright display, but we also didn't want to be accused of being Grinches without any Christmas spirit. We went somewhere in the middle, and I think we did okay. Ho, ho, ho! Merry Christmas! Friends, thanks for joining me today and listening to some completely random newspaper articles I've collected. There are a lot more where those came from, and I'll share more of them someday. Have a great weekend, and I'll talk to you later.